Welcome to Deal Us In, a podcast brought to you by McGuire Woods and Seven Mile Advisors. Deal Us In promotes the advancement of women in private equity and finance through conversations with women leaders and rising stars in the private equity and finance space. These conversations provide both insights and practical takeaways to inform your deal work and enhance the culture of your organization. If you're ready to drive the industry toward a more inclusive and diverse environment, then it's time to come to the table. Welcome back to Deal Us In, a podcast brought to you by McGuire Woods, LLP, and Seven Mile Advisors. I'm Ann Dorsett, and with me today are Phyllis Young and Kelsey Hitchcock. Today's episode is a year in review, 2021, the year that really wasn't what we thought it would be. To start off, we're going to highlight some trends that developed over 2021 in the private equity and finance arena. Phyllis, tell us from a debt finance perspective what you saw in 2021. Thanks, Anne. Yeah, definitely 2021 was a very busy year and a year, like you said, that was an unexpected year. A lot of activity in debt finance, even though when you looked at the kind of the overall economy and some of the macro factors, you might question whether there would have it would have been a really busy year. But 2021 was definitely a year with a lot of volume of deals um, from the debt finance perspective, I saw a lot of borrower side and lender side representations. In terms of the deal terms, even it was it's kind of hard to say whether it was a borrower's market or a lender's market. The market certainly opened up for borrowers and borrowers were able to get a lot of the deal terms that they wanted on financing. So that was a good thing. I saw a lot of first lien and second lien deals um, with commercial banks in the first lien, usually on an ABL or revolver, and some credit funds or non-bank lenders uh, with a second lien on uh, sort of term loan collateral. So there were a lot of, I saw a lot of split lien, what we call split lien transactions last year. Uh, another trend I saw was that I think the energy markets were opening up more so for borrowers than I'd seen in the pre- in previous years. So there was more activity um, in the oil and gas space on the borrower side and getting better terms for borrowers. So I think um, that's certainly something that was good for uh, the pers- from the perspective of oil and gas. And there was just a lot of acquisition. There was a lot of acquisition activity last year. So um, as a result, we saw a lot of add-on financings as well for um, uh, to dealing with really just the really significant high volume of acquisition um, activity that was going on last year. Kelsey, what about you? What, what uh, trends were you seeing last year? I think 2021 was a year of unprecedented deal volume for most transactional attorneys. It seems like we're having that ever increasingly and uh, the pandemic maybe didn't have the exact effect um, everyone was expecting or you might have expected in 2021. So it's been, it was a busy year. One of the things that I saw time and time again in LOIs and purchase agreements was earnouts kicking part of the purchase agreement down the road to, you know, six months out, 12 months out, two years out, possibly longer. 
while people were trying to determine exactly what the appropriate purchase price was on a given deal for a particular entity or for a particular set of assets, just valuing those business different businesses became uh, difficult with, without consistent financial statements that were kind of reflective of the ordinary operations pre-pandemic. And now, I say more often than not in LOIs, I'm still seeing burnouts, some tied to performance, some tied to continuity issues, like continuity of staff, making sure that the founder is staying on board for a period of time post-closing for integration issues. Related to that, I've seen a lot of retention bonuses uh, for employees, sometimes taking right off the top of the purchase price. Seller wants to kind of ensure, in a way, meeting certain earnouts. And so, in order to try to make sure that things will continue as usual post closing, they're sweetening the deal for some of their employees. A separate, so we have those retention bonuses. Also, side, just whether or not we're treating the pandemic as an MAE, material adverse effect how we're dealing with the potentiality for or speculation regarding additional closures or certain um, stricter requirements, which is variable across different jurisdictions. And now swinging back to PPP and coronavirus relief programs that many of the sellers participated in to try to keep their businesses afloat and determining what do we do if not the full amount of the PPP loan is forgiven? If it's only partially forgiven, who has the claim in that case? Who controls any appeal process? Are you going, is the buyer going to permit an appeals process? Or is the value of that claim or the uh, tenuousness of collecting the rest or essentially gaining more forgiveness under those programs, is it worth battle? Um, so those are a lot of the issues that we saw in the tail end of last year, um, throughout the year, and then in the tail end of last year. And the last one I think we've seen time and time again is many deals needing rep and warranty insurance, maybe not being able to procure rep and warranty insurance that was cost-effective for giving a deal towards the end of the year. And then those kind of rep and warranty insurance deals that should have been done in maybe 2021, a lot of them getting pushed into 2022. But now I'm treading on uh, Anne's territory. But I'm sure you've seen that even more up close, Anne. Tell us about what you've seen in 2021 and what you're seeing now in 2022. Thanks, Kelsey. Yeah, 2021 was crazy from an RWI perspective, and it started even before the third quarter. From what I've been told, uh, because of the activity, because of deal flow, rep and warranty insurers reached their expected premiums by mid-July, mid which meant that they could become far more picky. They were also being over, overwhelmed by deals, and so they had uh, staffing issues, just like we had staffing issues. And so as we went toward third quarter and really into fourth quarter, the price of rep and warranty insurance went up, the terms went up, and the number of bids went down. So in June, I was used to seeing for 
any range of, of uh, deal size, bids that included four or five good bids. And the brokers would tell me, well, we got eight and we're only giving you, we're only showing you the top five. By November, we were getting bids of one. And it's very hard to <laughs> negotiate when you only have one insurer willing to insure your deal. Um, and so with that came a lot more pre-underwriting exclusions. And then during the process itself was extremely rigorous. And then it's also the cost went up, it doubled. So in June, we were seeing an average around, of around 3%. By the end of the year, it was 6% and higher. And again, part of that's just total deal volume. And so you are going up and they are, they are picking and choosing which deals they want to underwrite. So I had, as you mentioned, Kelsey, I mean, we had deals where we couldn't get insurance. I also had deals where we had insurance and the client just walked away because at, by the end or midway through underwriting, it was clear that we were getting a product that really wasn't going to work and that it was better to just go back to the traditional structure of the seller putting 10% up. As we wander into 2022, I'm very relieved. January did not seem to have much relief. I was still getting bids that were one or two bids per deal. The most recent deal that I'm working on, we received five bids, which made my heart just glow as a rep and mortgage insurance lawyer, because it's always better to have bids to look at and to help your client select um, rather than dealing with one. So I think that you know the market is opening up a little bit more. Um, hopefully they've staffed up. Hope, hopefully they've gotten the financial um, reserves. I know a couple new entrants were coming in that will also help. It will hopefully help bring the prices down because I will tell you right now, price-wise, it is still twice what it was in 2021, the beginning of 2021. So it's still expensive um, or more expensive than it was this time last year. Kelsey, what about you? Did you see any of the trends that you saw last year? leading over into 2022? For me personally, the activity through December just spilled over into January and now into February. It's been uncharacteristically busier for a first quarter for me. I know that that may not be across all transactional attorneys, the same experience, obviously, um, but for me personally, that's, that's where I am. And I just think some of these issues are not going away soon. The PVP appeal issues, the valuation issues, I don't think that there's as much data and consistent data as people would like for valuations. I think we'll still see a lot of earnouts this year. And then employee retention, I think as all of us are aware, kind of across a lot of different industries is continuing to be a concern. And so it's unclear when that will, if that will or when it will level out and kind of uh, way back to normal. I think it's, it's hard to imagine the pendulum on a lot of these issues swinging kind of seamlessly back to where we began in early 2020. So I think we're starting from a new normal and that's like an ever-evolving place. 
where are you seeing, Phyllis, in 2022? Any repeats of issues that you saw in 2021? Or are you seeing new issues already? Yeah, kind of like you, we there seems to be, have been a lot of spillover from year-end deals into this first quarter of 2022. And so it's definitely been, for debt finance, a busy quarter because of a lot of the deals um, and the, the the backlog, essentially, from December that's about closing in this first quarter. One of the things I didn't mention was LIBOR transition. And um, last year, a lot of deals were getting amended to prepare for LIBOR to go away. And so... I think um, this year you'll see, uh, to the extent agreements haven't been amended, you'll see more provisions about LIBOR transition and uh, credit facilities. Um, And probably we'll also see tweaks to those types of uh, LIBOR provisions, LIBOR transition provisions that are in now agreements that were amended last year, just as everyone gets used to you know, this transition here as far as how they're calculating interest rates and their credit facilities. So I see that as something that will be coming up this year. And, you know, one of the things, kind of one of the themes that I saw last year as well was kind of what I think of as sort of a transition or focus on sort of new economy and new products. So I saw activity last year in the fintech market, um, ad tech, sort of alternative power. Um, There was even a lot of interest in Bitcoin. So I think that you'll see more of that in this coming year. And um, there's also um, an interest, and I think we've all probably seen some former fashion ESG, uh, various components of ESG in our deals. And I think we'll see more of that as well in credit facilities going forward where borrowers will be required to provide some form of ESG report to their lenders as that is uh, getting to be more and more important. Um, We see that particularly with um, PE investors and funds that are investing in companies by providing loans. So I think that'll be something else that we'll continue to see this year. Do you typically see issues like that come up, bubble up in less traditional institutional lending and then uh, the kind of more traditional institutional institution, lending institutions picking up some of those concepts? Does that ever, I guess, does it trend that way in your experience? You mean just kind of speaking in general about things like sort of new things like ESG and whether commercial banks kind of pick up on it just in yeah, general? That's kind of yeah, that's a good question. I mean, nothing necessarily jumps to mind with me about things that may be traditional or sort of non-bank lenders or credit funds or PE funds that are acting as lenders I don't know, nothing really jumps to mind on that point, I would say. But, you know, I think that as ESG, for instance, ESG just kind of gets more and more important and continues to get to take a hold in the market. You probably would see commercial banks having more of an interest in that because, you know, they're shareholders 
are interested in those types of issues as well. And, you know, just kind of speaking generally, I do think there is more so now compared to when I started practicing, uh, you see more of that, those types of interests that the shareholders have, those types of issues, you see more of that kind of coming out in the actual deal documentation. And I wanted to go back to something that you were talking about earlier um, with seeing seeing additional bids on some of your on some of your deals, and although the prices are still high, are you seeing are you seeing that trend across different industries? I know we don't have the kind of deal volume probably in the first month that would tell you, you know, obviously across all industries, but for instance, I know. Healthcare, breath and warranty insurance can sometimes be a different animal than, you know, a different, a non or not as regulated field that is seeking or industry that's seeking breath and warranty insurance. Do you think that we're swinging back to a place where healthcare deals are getting more bids as well, or is it is it kind of the general market? That's a really good question, uh, Kelsey. What we're seeing really with uh, healthcare in particular is a willingness on the part of the insurers to start bidding without exclusions for billing and coding and HIPAA, which is something that we saw in fourth quarter where we were looking at bids that right off the bat, they weren't going to do billing and coding. Right off the bat, they were going to have a data privacy exclusion. So we're, we're seeing more bids with less of those pre underwriting exclusions in the bids themselves for healthcare, um, which is a good thing. We're also seeing some expertise being developed in some new players, which is also a good thing. It will help uh, not only in terms of bringing prices down, but in terms of making your bid more attractive is if you have more insurers who are willing to insure the risk then they're going to be fighting over the terms and their bids will become more attractive, even if the prices um, don't adjust. And to be honest, my view is I don't think we're going to see prices adjust. Insurance is extremely hard market right now because of losses across the industry. And I think that it took a while for rep and warranty to catch up. So my guess is that through 2022, we'll continue to see uh, the cost of rep and warranty insurance be around the 5 and 6% of premium mark. So as we uh, wind up, let's just talk about kind of something kind of soft. Let's talk about were we able to improve working from home in 2021 based on the hiccups that we experienced in 2020? And I'll say for me personally, the smartest thing that I did was I actually cleaned out a room and made a dedicated office before I was in the dining room. And really what that meant was I was available 24 seven and that's just not sustainable. I think in 2020, I did it almost as a, as a response to maybe anxiety just to kind of pour myself into work, but it's not sustainable. And so now having a dedicated home office, I've tried really much harder to set limits um, so that I'm not on call unless it's something that really needs to be answered. Phyllis, what about you? Any uh, good takeaways from 2020 into 2021? Yes, I would say that 
in 2021, I definitely was better working from home um, in terms of just having, although I would say 2021, I, I worked from the office as well. So I got more efficient at working from home, I guess what we call the hybrid, uh, working from home and working in the office. So for a good portion of 2021, I was doing the hybrid schedule. And uh, it, I think that actually made me more efficient when I was working in the office, because when I'd come in the office, I'd have these things that I need to get done. And I was able to really get them done in an efficient way. And I think I also just got better working from home. Um, when you think about practical things like printing out documents and things like that, you just got better dealing with all those types of things that you deal with when you're working from home versus being in the office and having the person that you're working with two doors down. So I would say I got much better working from home and um, dealing with sort of the hybrid trend and um, overall probably just being more efficient with both. And certainly um, in comparison to um, you know how I was working at the beginning of the pandemic in 2020. What about you, Kelsey? I think to Anne's point, having a dedicated home office is, you know, if you can if you can find a room and dedicate it to your working space, I think that's really helpful to kind of close out distractions and make sure that you're you're focused. And also, when you leave that space, you feel like you're actually unplugging for, even if it's just for dinner or something like that. At home, I have the same setup as I have in the office with two monitors and everything, and I think that really helps, too, because it's the same same setup that I'm used to, and, and that certainly certainly helps also. But I think that this year, I've developed a really good, I'll say as a transactional attorney, I don't really check out a lot. I am pretty much on call, and... That's just the nature of what this is. And I think that what I've done better in the last year is carving out, even if it's just like an hour in my day, you know, waking up, working, then maybe going to the gym, coming home, working some more, uh, you know, until dinner time. And then I have like a little bit, maybe if I want to get something else done after dinner, I'm able to do that. So kind of establishing a rhythm where instead of focusing the limited time I have on, you know, getting dressed and getting physically to a location, I'm more focused on prepping my day in a way that gets me ahead of the game and sets me up to get the things that I want to get done in that day actually done. So I've, I've really enjoyed working from home. It's going to be, you know, interesting to add to the mix, kind of like the hybrid, hybrid work structure of having, you know, I think we're going to be three days in the office, two days at home, determining kind of what works best for our local office, what days work for us and for our team to be in the office or outside of the office um, and kind of lining up everyone's schedules if that's helpful. But I think it's been a really good experience to kind of try to prioritize kind of what I think are the most important 
aspects of the day. And that, that to me is getting some activity in because I know I'm going to be sitting at my desk for quite some time. <laughs> and then getting the work in that I need to get in as well and kind of taking logical breaks. I can't tell you how many times I have gone to the gym or taken a shower and come back to an issue and or slept and seen it completely differently in such a radical way that all of the, it, it made it very apparent to me how important stepping away was. And, and especially like Anna saying, stepping away from like the physical space that you're doing most of your work in. I think there's really something about that physical distance providing that mental space that you need to come back to an issue new and refresh. This is certainly a work in progress. Uh, is there anything anyone would like to add from in their experience? One thing we probably just overall have learned the last couple of years that people can be just as efficient working from home or using a hybrid model of working. And so it's really something, probably the, the biggest challenge with working from home is just keeping up relationships with your coworkers. I think that's a challenge and probably will continue to be a challenge. But in terms of just being efficient, getting the job done, I think people can be just as efficient working from home or using a hybrid model um, versus being in the office. Yes. And the other thing that I've learned is to have a um, sweater, a professional looking sweater nearby for the um, video calls, because uh -huh. a lot of clients really love the video calls. I mean, it's so strange. It was like before coronavirus, we would get on the phone and just have a conference call. Now we're having video calls. So I've yeah. got to have my sweater so that I, I look like I'm a professional person when I get on the, the screen. But this has been a great chat. Thanks, Kelsey and Phyllis. Um, as we close this episode, I hope that listeners will return to our next episode. As always, please send comments and suggestions for speakers, issues to discuss, and questions for our panel. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks, all. Bye. Thank you for joining us at the table for this episode of DLS In. If you have a recommendation for an inspiring interviewee, a question you'd like us to ask, or a topic you would like to hear covered, or if you'd like to tell us about women-focused initiatives in the field, please go to our website at www.dlsnpodcast.com. We look forward to hearing from you.